The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Um, as Randy said, I'm Cameron, and I'll be uh, preaching from Jonah 3 this morning. Uh, I want to say the obligatory um, Happy Father's Day to all the fathers here. Not that it's not a good day to celebrate, not that it's not a good day for churches to recognize and to thank fathers, even though we didn't get you a gift. We are thankful for Father's Day and for the fathers in our life. I am thankful for my father because of the grace of God that I've seen in his life. And that grace, for those of us who have had fathers who have taught us the ways of the Lord, that grace points us back to our father, that Jesus tells us to remember when we pray, when we pray, Father. So I want to pray for us and for myself this morning before we get into the third chapter of Jonah. Uh, And after I pray, I will recap the first couple chapters for those of you who haven't been here. But if you would, would you pray with me? God of Grace, King and Savior, we acknowledge that your power as King extends far beyond the bounds we give it in our own hearts. You created for your glory, and yet we seek out our own pleasure elsewhere. You gave us every good thing, yet we rebelled against your rule. So, Father, help us this morning to seek out your mercy to entreat you to be kind to us and to give us a clear love for your son. Lower us in our sin and raise us up in Christ to eternal joy. We pray this in his name. So Randy has walked us through the past two chapters, the first two chapters of Jonah. And for those of you uh, who haven't been in church your whole life, you are maybe the only ones who aren't familiar with Jonah. As those of us who grew up in Sunday school uh, went through what Randy refers to as the felt mortification, that's his word, I, I won't say that it is a word, of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of uh, the country of Israel, the northern kingdom, and he prophesied to his people over and over again to repent and return to the Lord because they had wicked kings who had turned away from righteous ways. And actually in Jonah's lifetime, he did see the boundaries of Israel that nation restored to even the heights of when David and Solomon ruled over. When, when Israel was at its peak, when it was one nation, they, they saw the boundaries restored. They saw God's blessing on their people. So, so Jonah was a prophet who had seen the mercy of God to a people who followed after a wicked king. So in Jonah chapter 1, God says to Jonah, I want you to go to a city called Nineveh, a city that Jonah knew well. It was a large city, as Jen read for us. It was a great city, a three days journey from end to end. And it was a city of a kingdom, the Assyrian kingdom, that that would take them out into exile and and had been a world power. and, and, And the Israelites had seen the atrocities of the Assyrians. They had seen the, the cruelty and the torture of when, a, when an Assyrian army came in and took over a country, how they, the, how they took that country's inhabitants out and how they submitted them and forced them down into slavery, into worship of their idols. 
So Jonah knew that this country, this city that God was calling him to go to, uh, was not a kind place. It was not an American city where we can walk in and find a church on every corner. It was not uh, a city in Europe where we can walk and go and and have a cup of coffee and and see the sights. He was not going on vacation. He was not going. um, He's not going for pleasure. And so Jonah ran. Jonah disobeyed the Lord point blank. There's, there's no way around it but that the Lord told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah went the opposite way. In fact, he, in, he even boarded a ship that would take him the exact opposite way from where the Lord was leading him to go. And that didn't go well for him. Randy, in, in the first chapter, said that the author of this book in chapter 1 wanted us to see that God's sovereign purposes will not be thwarted. That our God is the God who has laid down a plan and he orders the steps of men. And regardless of what we think we do in our daily lives, our plans will in fact come into line with what God has ordained for us to do. And, and he was gracious to Jonah and that when Jonah was thrown overboard, He appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah up, to save his life, to preserve him, to rescue him from the depths of Sheol, the depths of the sea. Jonah knew that being thrown overboard was his end, but God had mercy on him. So in chapter 2, we saw that Jonah prayed a prayer that seems to be of repentance. He prayed a prayer that acknowledged that although he was in sin, God had been merciful toward him. So in the beginning of chapter 3, Jen read for us, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And the wording in the original is almost the same in this next couple sentences. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord this time. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, And he called out to the Ninevites as he's walking through the city. After one day, he's walking surrounded by these people, and he calls out, yet 40 days, and this city, your city, will be overthrown. The language that the author uses here is the same language that the prophets use, the angels use, to call out against Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, you will be overthrown the Lord will destroy you. And with Sodom and Gomorrah, he did. We saw his power in fire and brimstone raining down on those cities who refused to repent and and continued in their evil ways. And this is the same thing that Jonah is saying. Jonah is saying to this city who does not worship the Lord that the Israelites worship. They do not worship the creator of heaven and earth. He's saying, you have 40 days, which is more than Sodom and Gomorrah had. You You have 40 days And if something doesn't change, you will be destroyed. And God's wrath will come upon you, and you will not have any way out. So the guilt of the Ninevites is assumed in Jonah's proclamation. Jonah Jonah might not have gone into saying, well, you are guilty because of this. You are guilty because you don't worship the Lord. You are guilty because of your atrocities. You are guilty because of your cruelty and your murder and your hate. But when a prophet comes into a city and says, the Lord is going to destroy you, their guilt is assumed in that message. That message is saying, 
The Lord who has the authority to judge you has determined that you are guilty. So far in Jonah, Randy has done an excellent job of identifying us with the prophet. And that's exactly what the author wants us to do. As we watch Jonah receive a command from the Lord, we identify that we also receive directions from the Lord. We also receive in the New Testament, we watch as we, as Paul writes out what the Lord tells him to write out as what the Lord has taught him, that we are to live in a certain way, that we are to do certain things, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our heart and all of our strength. We, we have commands and we, we see Jonah receive a command and as we watch him disobey it, we identify with that as well, that our, our hearts are also disobedient. Our hearts are also bent towards fear. We don't, we don't want to go to a city and be killed. We don't want to go to Afghanistan as missionaries and be martyred within a year. We also share the fear of Jonah. And, and as we see the Lord discipline Jonah, we identify with the Lord's discipline in our life if we are believers, and we identify with his repentance But in chapter 3, something switches for the author of this book. It's no longer about Jonah. After those first four verses, Jonah isn't mentioned again until chapter 4. And it's because the focal point of the story isn't the negative example of Jonah anymore. Jonah disobeyed, and he was thrown into the sea and swallowed by a fish. and, And it took that length to bring him to admit that all those weeks long that he had been journeying away from the Lord, that he had been in sin. Instead, the author wants to give us a positive example, an example to emulate, an example that's going to come from the least expected place. So instead, today, instead of identifying our guilt with Jonah, the prophet of the chosen people of God who is disciplined by God, we need to identify our guilt with the guilt of the Ninevites, the guilt of the people who are murderers and are full of hatred and are full of evil because all of us once and now are in their place. And Jonah's lesson in the fish and in chapter four, which Randy will will talk about next week, is that he is no better than the Ninevites. His evil is the same evil as the Ninevites. We see this clearly in the New Testament. Let me run through Two things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. One thing that his brother says, and then one thing that Jesus says later. This isn't to um, this isn't to the Ninevites anymore. This is to those who are listening to Jesus as seekers, as wanting to know his his spiritual knowledge, wanting to know God more through him. This is what he says. You have heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, to the people of God. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, is liable to the hell of fire. He says later on in that chapter, you've heard that it was said as well, you shall not commit adultery, shall not cheat on your wife or husband, but I say to you that anyone who has looked at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. James, the brother of Christ, sums this up, sums this teaching up in saying this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is liable, has become accountable, is held to the standard of all of it. 
That if we have looked after a woman or a man with a lustful thought, if we have been angry or insulted our brother or sister, that really what we are showing is that we have broken the whole law of God. Romans 3.9, Paul says, We have charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, both the people of God and the Ninevites and us who are far from God, are under sin. And Jesus brings Nineveh into it. In Matthew 12, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What he's saying is because our guilt is the same as the Ninevites, if we don't follow the example of the Ninevites and repent in the same way that we did, we will not receive the same mercy that the Ninevites received. So this raises the question, what is sin? Is it just becoming angry? Is it just having a lustful thought? If the guilt of the Ninevites is the same as our own, this is our guilt. We pretend that this world is our kingdom, that our lives are our own, that this is our world and our story and our history and our timeline and our, our culture. We, we assume, we pretend that this is all ours, but this is what sin is in that. Sin is God not recognized, God not prioritized, God not desired. Sin is God not treasured. It's God not loved. God is the being, if we can speak of him that way, not created but eternal, above us in every way. But he is the being that is most worthy to be loved. His perfection should awaken in us a love for him. And when it doesn't, his wrath is the appropriate response to the offense we commit when we degrade his beauty and his loveliness. Even at the heights of our experience here, even as Christians, even indwelled by the Holy Spirit, our love for him does not match the amazement that his beauty deserves. We're so distracted by other beauties here that we fail to see him as beautiful. So what is the response of the Ninevites? If we are to identify our guilt with the Ninevites, then let's identify our repentance. Let's emulate the Ninevites in our repentance. This is what the response of this people far from God is. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Even the king, he rose from his throne. He removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published this through Nineveh. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them call mightily out to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. And this is where we can learn from. He says, who knows that God might turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It says in verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. So what did they believe? Did they just believe that God existed? Did they believe, oh, okay, so Yahweh is, is the real God, the Lord of the Israelites. He, he is God. We believe in God. We, we assent intellectually to this idea that God is the true God. And we will now not have idols, but now we believe that he's God. That, that's not all they believed, is it? They also believed in their guilt. 
They believed that if this God has the authority to judge us, then we do stand guilty before him. The next step in their hearts wasn't just acknowledging their guilt, but it deeply mourned them. That out of their conviction came a grief and a mourning that wasn't momentary. It was a longer process. It was a felt emotion. It was a felt need. Christianity is not an intellectual belief that God is real and we are guilty. So therefore, if we call on Jesus, because we're afraid of our guilt, he'll save us. Christianity is us acknowledging not only that we are guilty, but that we are in desperate need and that we don't just turn away from that guilt and flippantly call on God's mercy, but that we are actually mourned because we see God as beautiful. So what can we learn about repentance? We learn that true repentance, not repentance as we sometimes see it in our own hearts, or in people around us, true repentance brings grief and trembling. And, and this is why. God does not pity sin. God does not pity us in our sinning. We are not stray animals in need of a home. We are not a lost person in need of a loving arm. We are rebelling against him because we want to be God, we want to be in our own kingdom. We want to have all of our pleasures and all of our beauties in our life as our own instead of acknowledging that God is that beauty. We learn that repentance, true repentance, brings us to our lowest point. That repentance, if it does not lower us to saying I am empty and I am lost and I am damned without you and your mercy, then we haven't felt the depths of our guilt. We, we only understand our guilt in a sense of, well, I don't want to be punished. We don't understand our guilt that it is a cosmic offense to a beauty that deserves to be seen and loved. Christian living is living lowly so that Christ might raise you up in himself. Christian living is not elevated living because God blesses us. Christian living is elevated living, if you want to call it that, because in Christ's resurrection, we too will be brought up to the pinnacle of creation. We too will be brought up to fullness of joy, not because God blesses us and fixes our lives here, but because he gives us joy in his son when that time comes. And this is the third thing we learn about repentance. We learn that laboring in repentance is good for us rather than quickly turning and banking on God's mercy. The Ninevites sat in their conviction in sackcloth and ashes, and it was good for their hearts so that when they received mercy, God had drawn the contrast. He had drawn the black backdrop of sin so that his mercy was the brightest point in their sight. None of this is helpful if we don't learn about God. We can't see God as beautiful if we don't know him. His name, as important as that is, is not enough to identify us as Christians if we don't know what God it is that we are serving so we learn two things from 
verse 9 and 10. And the first is from verse 9. Verse 9, the king of Nineveh says, who knows? Who knows? God might, God may, he may turn, he may relent, he may not destroy us in fire, he may not burn our entire city. I don't know, but I am banking on that mercy. We learn that God is, is king. This is the hard one for us in America, right? It's hard for us to not presume upon God's mercy. Although Paul says, why do you presume on his mercy? Why do you why do you so quickly think that God will show you? Don't you realize that his mercy is made to send you to repentance? His mercy is made to show you the depths of your sin? Now, the, the right attitude towards God is multifaceted. It is, it is a gem that you turn from side to side and watch the light refract through. Because God is so much more complex than we give him credit for now but, but one of those that we miss is that God is king. God is sovereign. God's purposes are not manipulated by us. Everything that he does, a writer that I, I read this week described, every decision from the Lord comes out of his throne room from behind the veil of cloud around it. That we are not in the conscience and the mind of God manipulating and arguing with him with what he shall ultimately do. He is king and he makes decisions and we don't understand that because we don't live under any ruler like that. We, we live under presidents that we vote for. We live under authorities in our lives that we can move from school to school if we want to. We can even uh, divorce ourselves from our parents which is sometimes helpful and many times not, because authority to us is not permanent. Authority to us is not sovereign. Authority to, not, to us is not above reproach. Authority to us is questionable. And maybe rightly so for us, but not rightly so with God. Let me read you some from the scriptures that makes this point. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with the one who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Job 36, 22, and Job 42. These are from Elihu, the young man who comes and gives reason to the older man. He says, behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, you, God, have done wrong? And then he says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Paul says the same thing in the hardest chapter in Romans to walk through. If you are reading Romans for what it says, Romans 9 is the chapter that destroys pride in our hearts. And Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? And the psalmist gives perfect words to it. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. 
And because of that, God is worthy to be worshipped because the rights that we assume for ourselves in our Western culture will be stripped away when every knee bows. The rights that maybe it is good for us to have in our society will one day not exist because we will be before the king who created us. Believing in God, or believing God's message as the Ninevites did, is not a good thing if he also doesn't give away for mercy. Let me put it this way. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God and believing that he is raised from the dead is terrible news for you and me if he is also not a king who came to give us mercy and we see that and throw ourselves on that. So although God is this king and we must teach ourselves because culture has not taught us and our sinful hearts are not naturally prone to do this, we must teach ourselves that God is a sovereign king that we must tremble before because it is good for our hearts to do so. He is also a merciful king. He is also the God who gave mercy to that nation of Nineveh. That when he saw them, and he saw that they were casting themselves upon him before his throne with no hope other than his mercy, he saw and knew that they had understood who he was as king and that they had understood that it is his decision and his right to give them mercy or not. And they were saying, God, we have nowhere else to turn but you. Maybe you'll relent. And he showed them mercy. And that Jesus who is risen now and enthroned in heaven and will come as king to destroy everyone, even though we don't like to talk about it, he will destroy everyone and throw into hell those who do not love him and follow his commands to love him and submit to him. He's a merciful God. What does this do in our repentance? If we don't know God as king, then we're not going to love him as the one who gives mercy. We're not going to find any amazement in the fact that the, that the king of the universe came and died on a cross for us and was raised so that we in him, if we see him as beautiful and trust in him, we might have that eternal life, that he has now been raised Two, the gospel is not simply that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and has been raised from the dead. There is no gospel without that. But the gospel is also that that crucifixion was for our sin, was for the sin of his people, was to ransom his bride and cleanse his bride and make us pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness, to fill our lives with righteousness because of how much we love and worship and adore him. The gospel is that he has come to transform us and that that transformation starts inwardly. As we see his death and resurrection, as we see that our sins have been paid for on the cross, we see that as beautiful. If that is not beautiful to us, if that is not a valuable thing to us, if that is just a blip on the timeline of our lives when we gave our lives to Christ, then we are not Christians. 
But he is a merciful God, and he calls for us to see our evil and turn from it, just as he did the Ninevites. God is more glorified in you when you treasure his mercy. Treasure him. How did the Ninevites respond after this? Do you think they went along on their day? Do you think they went back to their trading? They went back to their conquering? They went back to their murdering? They went back to their racism? Or was there a profound sense in them for the rest of those Ninevites' lives that God, the king, has rescued us and had mercy on us? Do you think that that changed their hearts, that they saw that act as a beautiful act? Seeing your sin and trembling as the Ninevites did is a means. Now, I'm talking to Christians. Christian trembling before the king is a means to glorifying him more in seeing his mercy is more valuable. If you glaze over your sin, you will not glorify him in his mercy. So what's the main point? If there's anything to walk away from today, even though we'll talk through a couple practical implications after this, the, the main point to walk away for, from today with is that repentance is shaped by Jonah 3, 9, and 10. Repentance is shaped by us saying, it is in God's hands to relent of this dis- destruction that he has told us that we will receive And I cast myself on his mercy and that God is merciful to grant us eternal life in his son. Repentance is not realizing you messed up, saying I'm sorry, moving on and trying not to do it again. It's a process of mourning your sin and taking that to God and saying, God, I am. (laughs) I'll read this prayer from an old prayer book. This is a prayer that uh, an old pastor prayed. Just an excerpt from it. While I confess my guilt, help me to feel it deeply with self-abhorrence and self-despair, despairing in and of himself. Yet, help me to remember that there is hope in you and to see, to gaze on the lamb who takes away my sin. So repentance changes us inwardly first. It instills humility in us because of the sin that we find ourselves in. It instills a humility in us, not only inwardly, but towards other people because we realize, like Jonah will, That the sin that we are in is the sin that everyone around us is in. And the mercy that we need is the mercy that everyone around us needs. Repentance in Jonah 3 teaches us to repent with tears and trembling rather than superficially. If there's any place for you to meditate on after this Sunday is, how authentic is my repentance? Have I gotten to the point where my repentance is so mechanical that I have no profound sense of my guilt when someone calls me out in sin or I find myself there? 
This view of God as king creates a deep respect for God who does all that he pleases, who is the king and who will answer to no one. But knowing him as merciful increases our thankfulness for his mercy for us in Christ Jesus. Knowing him as the king who will answer to no one is good news because he's merciful and he has wrought us mercy in the last place that we expected. It doesn't just change us inwardly, it changes us outwardly, and it changes us publicly. The last couple years have been tough for our country when it comes to the issue of racism. In every region of the nation, it seems, there has been an, an incident that has sparked Debate and anger and grief. Just this week, Dale mentioned the massacre in Charleston, which from the killer's point of view was not to kill Christians, but as he put it, to kill blacks. And if there is anything that can divide the Christian people right now, It is how we outwardly and publicly speak and act and talk to the people around us. So how does what we see the Ninevites do impact the way that we as Christians should should proceed in dealing with these issues that are not going to stop arising soon? One, we are to remember that all sides of our country struggle with race. We all share in the guilt of Adam. We have inherited this guilt from the first man, and we live into it with vigor every day apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We are to repent of our evil evil before, before pointing out the evil in others. Randy put it to me earlier this week, we are to combat the racism in our own hearts. Racism is, is a tricky thing now, right? It's, it's, not, uh, it's not as simple as it, it was to see in the 1800s, the 1900s. Racism is not simply looking at a particular ethnic group subculture, whether it be white or black or Asian or whatever it is, and saying, you know, that subculture has some, some traits in it that have been built up over hundreds of years that are not godly. Every ethnic group, every subculture has things in it that the gospel needs to speak to, and that's why missionaries are trained in contextualizing the gospel to speak to the evils that are within all of our subcultures. But racism is that unspoken assumption in our heart that somehow our race is more normal or our race is less weird or our race is a little bit better. That is racism and that is in our hearts. So just as Jesus teaches people listening to him, we need to say to ourselves, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye before you can point on Facebook to the speck in another's. This does not mean that we don't point out guilt. This does not mean that we don't have conversations. Jonah came with a message of destruction. But before we have the conversations about gun control, 
and about what's politically correct to say. And before we have the conversations about how we should change public policy, no matter how helpful those are or not, before we even enter into those conversations, we tremble before God because of the evils we as a society and as individuals have committed and do commit in our hearts towards each other. We repent of our evil and we say, who knows? Maybe God will bring reconciliation to our land. We pray and we hope and we give glory to God in doing that as the king who is the giver. And lastly, we remember that God is the mercy giver. He is the giver of what we seek, so we give mercy to those who we disagree with. It doesn't mean we don't talk. It doesn't mean we don't disagree. It doesn't mean we don't try to work together to understand each other better, but it does mean that we do so with kindness and gentleness and give mercy and grace to those who we are debating so ferociously on Facebook. This message of repentance also changes us privately in our, in our homes. And I'll gear this towards fathers because it's Father's Day. And I'm not a father. I'd love to be. But I will speak as a child. And I will speak as a Christian who is submitted to teaching what the Bible teaches about fatherhood. First, we know that our children or our fathers, from either vantage point, we are enslaved to sin. And apart from the, Holy, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will live in that. So when we see our fathers battling with their sin, or we see our children, especially growing up, especially as teenagers, I'm thinking back to my own teenage years, as we see them battling their sin, we give them mercy. We give them grace. We don't not speak truth, but we know that we're in the same sin as they are. Second, fathers, be quick to repent in front of and to your children, no matter how old they are. The opportunity to set that example is the greatest privilege and the greatest priority in fatherhood. Because repentance makes the gospel real. That repentance between people makes Christ's death and life tangible in our love for each other. Third, fathers tremble before God, who alone has the power to grant repentance to your children. Don't assume upon God's mercy that he will, but do everything in your power to teach them to love God and then give glory to God by acknowledging to him, God, may, maybe you will give them. I, I, I am desperate for you to give them. I cannot do it on my own. That is glorifying to him as giver. And lastly, as we wrap up, Jamin, you can come up. Fathers, the thing that will impact your children the most is not how pristine and Christian your life is. Or how well you hide your own sin. What, what's going to impact your children when they're my age, when they're young adults, is not how little you talked about your own sin. It's how much you talked about your own repentance. It's how fully your children see the mercy of Christ in your life, 
in light of your sin, if you can highlight Christ's mercy, do it and do it continually because Christ is made to look beautiful to your children when you treasure his mercy and his grace. This is the peak of what human fathers can do to point them to the Almighty Father. So pray with me that God would, as giver, give us this repentance as Christians. Pray with me. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.